I'm going to be reading Zechariah 1, 1 through 2, 13. So all chapters 1 and 2. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward 
And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we ask that on this Resurrection Sunday, God, that our eyes, that our ears, that our hearts would be opened to your word. God, to see, to hear, and to receive what you would have for us. And as we dive into this challenging text with these strange visions. God, help us to be comforted by the truth of what you are trying to communicate to your people. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, if you are visiting with us today, you may be wondering... What are you doing in the Old Testament on Easter Sunday, especially the minor prophets, especially Zechariah? And if you are a member or regular attender here, you are not surprised. Uh, since we were in Joel on December 25th, and our sermon was titled Christmas with the Prophets. If you see there, the title for today, it's Easter with the Prophets. Very original, I know. <laughs> this is the beginning of our 10th minor prophet book in 25 weeks, which has been a little crazy. There's been some really challenging texts that we've seen. Zechariah is an especially challenging book. It's the longest of the minor prophets, and it is also the most diverse. There are visions, narrative, sign actions where God calls Zechariah to act something out, and then there are prophetic oracles. So why not do something easier on Easter, like one of the resurrection accounts from one of the four Gospels? Well, there's a few reasons. First, we are committed to our schedule of finishing the Minor Prophets by the end of May, so that's just a, a pragmatic reason. Second, I would argue that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, okay? Yes, this is special. We celebrate Easter, but every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And third, every book of the Bible ultimately points us 
to Jesus and to his resurrection. The goal, no matter where we're at, whether we're in the Gospels or New Testament epistles or Old Testament narrative or the prophets, the goal is to preach Christ from all of Scripture. On the same day that Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. You can read this account in Luke 24. These followers did not recognize him, and they began to tell him about the events that had transpired over the past few days in Jerusalem. Do you remember how Jesus responded to them? He said, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh, how much we wish we could have been a part of that conversation, right? Then they sat down to eat, and Jesus blessed the bread and broke it, and he gave it to them, and it says that their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he vanished. So they hightailed it back to Jerusalem to tell the rest of the disciples. Then Jesus came and appeared to all of them. He showed them his hands and his feet to prove that he had really risen from the dead. And this is what he said to this whole group of disciples gathered in Jerusalem. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then don't miss this. Then he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Don't miss the significance of this. First, the prophets point us to Jesus. Zechariah, in particular, points us to Jesus. Zechariah is quoted more than any other Old Testament book outside of the Psalms, especially in the Passion account. Zechariah is the most quoted. Second, the purpose was not just an information download from Jesus to his disciples. He didn't just say, hey, here's a bunch of cool information from the Old Testament about me. The very fact that all this had been written and anticipated and is now fulfilled before their very eyes, that was what was to fuel them to go and to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins, the gospel, and to be witnesses clothed with power from the Holy Spirit. And we sit here today, brothers and sisters, 2,000 years later as recipients of this faithful proclamation that what was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms was all fulfilled in Jesus. So whether we're in Leviticus or Zechariah or the Psalms, our eyes are constantly being pointed forward to Jesus. Let's not lose sight of that fact today as we begin our study in Zechariah. 
Now, obviously, as we're diving into a new book, we do need to say a few things about the context of Zechariah in terms of background and, and history uh, before we dive in. First thing to note is that Zechariah was from a priestly family. That's important. So he's kind of operating both as a prophet and a priest, which kind of points us forward to Jesus. Zechariah's name means the Lord has remembered. This is significant because so much of what we see in this book is God's faithfulness to return and to dwell with his people. God remembers. God does not forget them. He remembers them. After our Good, good Friday service with Resurrection Presbyterian Church on Friday, Pastor Holda asked me about some of the takeaways that we've had from the Minor Prophet series. I've listed several things, but one of them I said is an appreciation for the timeline of the Minor Prophets, how we're hopefully gaining a better understanding of how all of these different events fit together, kind of this, this flow of things over this 350-year period, and how what we're seeing relates to a lot of other different parts of the Old Testament. Obviously, it can be confusing with all this talk about the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, this list of, of all these different kings from both kingdoms. There are a lot of dates that we've been throwing out there. Uh, there are enemy nations like Assyria and Babylon and now Persia. Kind of how does all this fit together, right? There's a lot of things going on. Well, where we are now, historically, we find ourselves in the same period as we saw in the last two weeks with Haggai. We are around 520 B.C. I remember for some dates, so we're in B.C., right? So we're counting, we're counting backwards, we're counting down. So they were, the people were exiled in 586, so it's been 66 years since the exile. Some of the people returned as early as 539, and they began rebuilding the temple in 536, but the work had stalled out. It's been 16 years since that work stalled out, and now it's resuming again in 520 BC. Again, you can read Haggai, you can go read uh, Ezra and Nehemiah to find out some information about those things. Also, it's worth noting that Zechariah breaks into two halves. Uh, the first half is chapters one through eight, which is a focus on the rebuilding of the temple and, then the, and, and also repentance. Then the second half is verses nine through 14, which focuses on a future restoration. This is kind of the same theme we've seen in a lot of the prophets, especially Haggai, uh, Ezekiel, which is a major prophet, has that same emphasis, go, kind of goes from negative to positive, especially as it relates to the temple. Now, Ezekiel is important here as we get into Zechariah because Ezekiel prophesied a couple generations before Zechariah, and he had a vision in chapter 10 of Ezekiel of the glory of God leaving the temple. This was a devastating vision in Ezekiel. For the God who had promised to dwell among his people and to be their God, he has now been symbolically removed from their midst because of their sin. This is devastating for the people of Judah. And then with the actual destruction of the temple in 586 and the subsequent exile, God's people were in a position that they never dreamed they would find themselves in. But as we know, all hope was not lost. There were promises of restoration. And now Zechariah, along with Haggai, is ministering to the people of Judah who have returned from Babylon. They are starting to see this restoration. The book begins here with these first six verses with a call to return to the Lord. We see this common phrase in verse one that is repeated throughout the prophets. 
says that the word of the Lord came to, and then it will name someone here. It is the prophet Zechariah. And there is a reminder in verse 2 to this current generation of their father's rebellion. Messages to, to not be like them. The message to this current generation we see in verse 3. God tells Zechariah to say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This idea of returning to the Lord is one we've seen throughout the Minor Prophets, something we've also considered for our own lives. What does it look like for us today to return to the Lord? Well, it's a continual practice of faith and repentance, right? It's built into our weekly rhythm of gathering together for corporate worship as we praise God for his faithfulness to us, as we confess our sins both individually and corporately, and as we're reminded and assured of God's grace and his mercy in our lives, despite our proneness to wander from him. We have that rhythm in our weekly lives, and it's good that we have that rhythm in our daily lives as well, right? That we're confessing our sins, that we're in the word, we're reminded of God's truth and God's promises to us. Now, this current generation here, Zechariah's generation, they're encouraged in verse, verses 4 through 6 to not be like their fathers, to not be like this previous generation who did not listen to the message of the prophets, who did not return to the Lord and turn from their evil ways. Now, while there is some debate about who the they is in the second part of verse 6 there, where it says, so they repented, there's debate among scholars if this is talking about the father's generation or the current generation. I think that kind of the natural way it reads and what seems to make the most sense is that it is the current generation because we're told that the fathers did not turn to the Lord. So this current generation seems here to have repented and turned to the Lord, but Either way, the message is the same. God calls for his people to return to him. And God promises that upon their returning to him, that he will return or turn to them. Again, remember the vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple in Ezekiel. We'll be coming back to that a little bit later. But for now, let us turn to this next section of Zechariah. Here's where things get interesting. Zechariah here is given a series of night visions. There are eight of them that occur from chapter one, verse seven through chapter six, verse eight. We'll be looking at these visions over the next couple weeks. There are some challenging passages here in, in these visions for a number of reasons. There, there's a lot of symbolism here. Uh, we have to remember that not everything that is depicted in these visions necessarily has a direct correlation to something in time and space, something in our reality. Sometimes it does, but it doesn't necessarily have a direct correspondence. Sometimes the people or things in the visions are explained to us, but when they are not, we should be careful not to read too much into the details. Might say, oh, red horses, blood of Jesus. Well, maybe. <laughs> Probably not, right? We don't want to stretch those details too far. That over-speculation sometimes can be unhelpful, and it can distract us from the message that the Lord is trying to communicate here. So 
Um, if you want to go home and dive into those things and, you know, draw some crazy charts and visions and colored things and come back to me and with what you think it means, I'd be happy to have a conversation with you, but I'm not going to dive into too much of that. This is how Leland Riken and Sean O'Donnell in a really great book about biblical interpretation, how they describe the purpose of dreams and visions in the Bible. They say that they are often given to encourage the oppressed and to bring hope to the hopeless. They are designed to exhort and console oppressed believers by disclosing a transcendent vision of the future that God has prepared, which will overturn present earthly circumstances. Think about the book of Daniel, right? The whole book of Daniel is all these visions of, of nations and, and clashes and the son of man comes and there's this overturning of the nations that God is gonna, he's gonna win, he's gonna destroy these nations in these crazy visions, right? But it's all to comfort believers who are oppressed and who are struggling. Think about the book of Revelation, right? The goal isn't like, oh, what do all these little things mean? And, and let's draw this timeline and who's the, who's the antichrist and all these things, right? The goal is to encourage believers who are struggling in this world, who are oppressed in this world, and who need hope that God is going to overturn their circumstances in the midst of what they're facing. So what were the present earthly circumstances in Zechariah's day? What's going on? Well, the temple is in ruins, right? The temple's not completed. We saw that last week in Haggai chapter 2. We also see this issue that Zerubbabel, who is the rightful heir to the throne, to David's throne, he is called the governor of Judah. He's not the king. So there's no king. There's no kingdom. There's no temple. There's no throne. There's no altar for sacrifices. And God's people are like, what's going on, right? Who are we? Where is our identity right now? And the message also to Zechariah's grandfather, which we saw last week, we talked about that from Jeremiah. God said he was going to tear that signet ring off of Jeconiah's hand. But then the Lord promised in, at the end of Haggai that he was going to return that authority one day. He was going to place that signet ring back on Zerubbabel's finger, which seems to clearly point forward to a future king, since we know that Zerubbabel never actually sat on the throne of Judah in his lifetime. Again, there's this future encouragement that God is going to restore his people. God is going to bring that authority back. And what are our present earthly circumstances today as the people of God? We are part of a kingdom, but it is a spiritual kingdom and not an earthly kingdom. We live physically in whatever country of the world in which Christians reside. We live as citizens under the authority of earthly kings or presidents or prime ministers or whatever title is given to the leaders of different nations. And we long for an eternal kingdom that has been promised to us. But in the meantime, we wait and we labor for the Lord under the hand of sometimes tyrannical rulers. Are we really that much different from those in Zechariah's day? We are surrounded by and no doubt ourselves also susceptible to circumstances and events that are causing great deals of anxiety and hopelessness for people. If there has ever been a time that people needed a vision of hope for the future, it is now. Of a promise of a brighter tomorrow. That things can change. That things can one day be better than they are now. 
Isn't that what the purpose, again, of what these biblical visions are? Let me read again that quote that I just read. They're given to encourage the oppressed and bring hope to the hopeless. They are designed to exhort and console oppressed believers by disclosing a transcendent vision of the future that God has prepared, which will overturn present earthly circumstances. There is hope in these visions for the believer, for the one who trusts in the sovereign Lord who rules it all. These visions are not meant to be a terror. They are meant to be a comfort. So let us consider then these first three nightly visions. The first vision is chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, of a rider on a red horse with horses of different colors surrounding him. It's likely based on the grammar here that there were multiple horses of each color. So I don't know how many, but there are probably several horses uh, surrounding him of each color, kind of this picture of this army of horses. Then we see in verse nine, Zechariah begins to engage with an angel who is going to show him what they are. The answer to his inquiry comes from the man who was Standing, we see in verse 10, the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Now we learn in verse 11 about the identity of this man. And they answered the angel of the Lord. So this man is supposed to be the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. There's a lot of speculation about this identity of this angel of the Lord based on other Old Testament passages here. Likely, the, the main emphasis here is that it symbolizes the Lord's presence with them, that God is in their midst. He is with them. An interesting thing here is that these horses, they patrolled and they found the nations at rest. Now, these are the surrounding nations who were oppressing God's people. The oppressors are at rest while God's people, the oppressed, are not at rest. Look at the question in verse 12. The angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long, we see that language in the Psalms, don't we? How long, O Lord? How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? There is angst here. O Lord of hosts, God of heaven's armies, the sovereign one who is powerful and in control of the whole world. How long? How long will you have no mercy? And look at how God responds. Verse 13. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Gracious and comforting words. Lest we think that all God did was speak words of judgment and wrath through his prophets. Here he comes, he speaks gracious and comforting words. And Zechariah is told, starting in verse 14, to cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. What a beautiful picture here of God's just judgment on the nations on the one hand and his merciful work among his people on the other. There's a promise here of the restoration of the temple and of the overflowing and prosperity of the cities and comfort for Zion. God hears the cries of his people. God responds by, to their returning by himself returning to them with mercy. He does not treat them as their sins deserve. Now, the second vision here in verses 18 through 21 is pretty short. Notice this key phrase in verse 18, which often indicates the beginning of a new vision. Zechariah says, and I lifted my eyes and saw and behold. Now, here in this second vision, Zechariah sees four horns, and he is told that these are the horns that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Now, in the Bible, horns symbolize power and strength. Think about the horns of a ram or the horns of a bull. Their power is in their horns to, to fight against other animals, to defend themselves. Next, the Lord shows Zechariah four individuals who come to terrify the horns and to cast them down. And what is the identity of these individuals? Or what would we expect it to be? Now, we might expect angels riding on red horses, right, to come to cast down these horns. That would be terrifying. Or of warriors with swords and spears coming to smash them. But what do we see instead? Craftsmen. That's odd. Craftsmen, or we could translate this carpenters or masons. Those who would have worked on the temple. Well, what's going on here in this vision? That's likely that the four horns refer to four directions, north, south, east, and west, and that they represent the nations from these four directions who were responsible for scattering God's people. The horns are bad here, okay? The significance of this vision is seen in the great reversal that the Lord is going to bring about. One commentator points out that compared to mighty warriors, craftsmen may be seen as figures of weakness. And in this case, there is a strange conjunction of power and weakness in the vision, with the weak overcoming the strong. And he points out that this is an encouragement to us to do God's work today. Remember what we saw in Haggai? God, Haggai tells the people, get to work, right? Get to work on the temple. So this is an encouragement to do God's work today, knowing that God works powerfully in and through his people, often in spite of our inadequacies. Isn't that the same reminder we need today on this Easter Sunday? Are we really any different than Jesus' disciples who were hiding behind locked doors when Jesus appeared and showed them his hands and his side and he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. 
How incredible that despite our fears and our worries, the Lord gives us his peace and he sends us out to accomplish his purposes. Now the third vision comes in chapter 2, and it is of a man with a measuring line coming to measure Jerusalem. The message in verses 4 and 5 is that God will fill Jerusalem with people and livestock, and he himself will be a wall of fire around them and the glory in their midst. There is already here in this vision the hint that the physical structures that the people had been trusting in, the city walls and the temple, that they were ultimately not that significant. Verses 6 through 9 depict the Lord calling his people back to him and pronouncing judgment on those who have oppressed them. These oppressors will be shaken, and it will be clear that the Lord of hosts has accomplished this. Now, verses 10 and 11, then, are a call to worship. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. We said earlier that we would come back to Ezekiel's vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. O. Palmer Robertson, in his book, The Christ of the Prophets, explains that the departure of the Lord's presence opened the floodgates of devastation to be poured out on the temple in Jerusalem, the land, and its people. So when this departure, this vision of God departing from the temple, it opened the floodgates of devastation to be poured out on the temple in Jerusalem, the land and its people, and that the exile in the sense of banishment from the Lord did not end either with the return of the people to the land or even with the rebuilding of the the temple. Exile could be said to end only with the return of the Lord to his people, which Ezekiel sees in a vision in chapter 37, after he sees the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Think about that on this Easter Sunday. This picture of resurrection from death to life. These dry bones that have flesh put on them and then they come back to life. Later in chapter 37, God promises to make an everlasting covenant of peace with his people. This is what he says. I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Again, Robertson explains the significance of Ezekiel's vision. He says the fundamental reason for the restoration to the land and the rebuilding of the temple was the witness these events would give to the Lord's ongoing intention to redeem a fallen world. We know from what we saw in Haggai a couple weeks ago, this rebuilt temple paled in comparison to Solomon's temple. And that was for a reason. This temple wasn't the place where God would return to dwell with his people. That would have to wait another 500 plus years 
years. In John's gospel in chapter one, John describes Jesus coming into the world as the light who came to give life to all those who received him and believed in him. Then in John 1.14, we read these incredible words. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, what happened in Ezekiel's first vision? The glory of the Lord lifted up and left the temple. What happened in his later vision? The Lord came back. He returned to dwell among his people so that the nations might know him. Jesus took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Some of you Bible geeks might know this word here. This word for dwelt literally means tabernacled. Okay, It's the word that's used for the tent or the tabernacle. Saying Jesus became the temple. He became that inner sanctuary where God had dwelt in the Old Testament. God dwelt among us in his son. In John 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple, the Jews asked him for a sign. Show us why, why are you doing this? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it in three days? But John tells us that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And that when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Do you see the significance of this? All this talk of the temple in the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets. As Jesus told his disciples after his resurrection, what was written in the prophets was all about him. All of the calls to return to God. All of the promises that God would dwell among his people once again. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. The Jews did destroy the temple of his body when they hung him on that cross. But three days later, he was raised up. He rose and he conquered the grave. Hallelujah. And just as the saints in Zechariah's day looked forward to a fulfillment of God's future promises, so do we. Although Jesus has come and he has lived and he has died and he has rose and he has ascended for us, it's not the end of the story. But it's just the beginning. In fact, the story has no end. The story goes on forever. May we never tire of hearing of that glorious day. I could read this every Sunday. I, I'd read this a lot, but I could read this every single, I could read this at the end of every single sermon and it would be relevant. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Brothers and sisters, are we living in light of our resurrection hope? Are we facing the ups and downs of this life, knowing that whatever comes our way, that we can confidently proclaim that death is swallowed up in victory, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15? Can we mock death along with the Apostle Paul and ask the questions, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This is what we can confidently say on this side of our Savior's empty tomb. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain, for he is making all things new. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice. We rejoice in your word that from Genesis 1-1 to the last verse in Revelation, that it all points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promises, God, of the hope we have. We thank you that we can look to a text as, as challenging as we see here in, in these visions in Zechariah, not a place we would just normally go for our, our quiet times to be encouraged but there is hope here. There is a reminder here of your glory, God, of your dwelling with your people, of your promise to, to return, to make all things new. God, help us to fix our eyes on that future glory as we wait, as we plod along in this life, walking by faith and not by sight, walking and, and living in the light of the resurrection hope that we have. God, give us strength. Give us perseverance. Give us hope to face whatever comes our way. God, knowing that you will keep your promises to your people. You will, as you have promised, make all things new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.